Hello, BTP listeners. I want to take this time to say a few words about this particular episode. Um, the reason for that is that it's a little bit different episode from what we've been doing up until now. In that there are this episode is going to be a little bit more on the sophisticated side. There are going to be terminologies that uh, we may or may not describe in very very detail. So for that, we are creating something called the show notes that we are going to attach as a PDF, or you can find it on our website, to the episode where you can go navigate the timeline and find the, those terminologies, or if we reference to something, some uh, character in the past, or a link to something that we discuss, we will put those things on that PDF, the show notes. You can get a lot more out of the episode if you follow those and I encourage you to do so. Take advantage of the show notes. It took us a while to come up with this, create this, uh, as good as make it as good as it is. So definitely try to make use of it. I would highly recommend it. And with that, I want to move on to introduce our guests. First off, you know one of my guests on this episode from our past episodic versions, and that is Govind Mohan. Govind is a computer scientist, mathematician, and a philosopher from my point of view. He's one of my dearest friends. Uh, we met at the university, and we've been hanging out ever since. He's one of the most br brilliant people I know. His mind is extraordinary, and um, the way he thinks about the world is, of course, on a different level. So I appreciate him joining me today. Our other guest is Deep Prasad. Deep I got to know about him through Govind, actually, and ever since he has got his seat up top on, to, on the top of the list of the people who I appreciate a lot. Um, he, too, is a philosopher, engineer, and a theoretical physicist from my point of view, and he, too, has a very unique way of looking at things about the world, and I appreciate both of these guys to be part of this episode. And we're going to talk about a lot of cool stuff. Uh, and I'm really happy to share this episode with you. Enjoy. All right, Govind. Govind Mohan. Did I say it right? Mohan. Yeah. yeah. Mohan. How's it going, man? Good. How about you? Good, good. And we have with us Deep Prasad. Did I say that right? Hey. Great. Uh, awesome. How's it going, man? Uh, good. I'm excited for this. Oh yeah, I've been waiting for this a long time. I I was doing the you know the the exams and all that, and I was like, I can't fucking wait till it's over, and we can do this. Okay, so what are you doing these days, Govin? Well, uh, these days I'm working at a legal tech startup uh, called Secure Digital Ledger Technologies, using uh, novel oh, NLP techniques to convert uh, legal contracts to smart contracts. Very good, very good. And you, Deep? Um. um... Likewise, uh, just like Ovin, I'm also running a startup, and I'm working on engineering simulations. Basically, we're looking at different classical quantum uh, algorithms that are essentially used to speed up and find better accuracies in numerical methods. So that applies to solving partial differential equations for now, um, as well as some other stuff that I can't really talk about. But the idea or like the vision of our company is to accelerate humanity's research capabilities by hundreds of billions of human hours uh, through algorithms and quantum computers. Okay, so when you say this, if I don't know what you're talking about, 
and I sort of don't. It freaks me the fuck out. <laughs> Sorry, fix you, the what? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. But uh, we'll get into details of not of this, but of technicalities, because as we discussed... Yeah, yeah, I can totally tie in what I, was, uh, like what I just talked about into what we bring up, because you know everything is very connected in the math and physics world, and we're all trying to basically solve the way I see it, different parts of the same puzzle. Fair point. That's a good one. Okay, that's that's good. So let's dive in actually, because as we as we were discussing this, this is going to be relatively on the technical side of our episodes. We're going to have uh, slightly more sophisticated terminologies that we may not may or may not delve into, explain very in details. But it's fine because we're gonna, with the help of our friends here, Govind and Deep, uh, we're gonna create a, a, a little bit of a cheat sheet, sort of like show notes. And we're going to give, if we refer to something, we, we put a link to it. If we uh, not describe it, the terminology, we'll do it in the PDF form that you can see in the attached file. Um, anyway, so uh, Govin, why don't you actually go ahead and start us and uh, talk about, uh, give an give a introduction of what we're going to be talking about today. So, um, well, I think the main thing we want to be talking about is the uh, different techniques of of artificial intelligence, what we what we've come to call artificial intelligence, and uh, the process of how we created it. So just just a little bit of background. Uh, in the 20th century, we we kind of reached the pinnacle in mathematics, computing, and the sciences that allowed us to abstract the the, the more the, the fundamental human task of learning. And uh, what was one thing that really led to this this uh, this to happen is uh, David uh, David Hilbert, the math- mathematician. In about uh, the 1900s, uh, he 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 started an undertaking to create a foundation for mathematics, and this subsequently allowed for the development of uh, inference or deduction engines, as we'll we'll talk about subsequently, that are able to prove uh, theorems automatically, uh, prove mathematical theorems, and uh, um, and and after this, our our focus kind of shifted towards probability, which kind of uh, arose in in the mid 20th century. And uh, and since since then uh, we we started focusing more on, on on exploiting uncertainty to to give us a more clear picture of of, of how things work, and uh, and since then we 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 kind of dropped the ball on uh, on on inference engines, but now that they are making a slight resurgence in the AI community, I think maybe combining these two techniques could get us something very close to the human mind, and 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 we also we're going to discuss in a bit about how. Uh, if if the if the human mind isn't using these cognitive processes, uh, then then what else could there be? And uh, maybe we'll just you know talk a little bit about that as well. Pretty cool. Uh, so I have a question for you though. Uh, when you say uh, automatically prove theorems like mathematical theorems, what do you mean by that? How does that how does that work? Okay, so it's very interesting. You, you, when you think of proving theorems, you'd probably think that this is like a super creative endeavor that uh, you know there's no way a computer can do that, but uh, part of uh, the the reason I mentioned Hilbert was uh, the result of Hilbert uh, creating this this challenge for mathematicians. There's the, the several other mathematicians, such as uh, uh, and philosophers such as Bertrand Russell uh, and some others. They they developed a technique for defining a proof. So a proof is basically you start out with a bunch of axioms, right? Some some things you 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 think are universal truths, your assumptions. So you have your assumptions, and then you have these uh, logical tautologies. So if I say if if Puya is on the Skype chat, then Puya is on the Skype chat. This is obviously true, right? It's it's if if something, well, then so. something, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then, then let's not get into fuzzy logic. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, if uh, if you have like if you have a normal you know sane logic, then um, you, 
a proof is nothing but the assumptions, uh, a bunch of tautologies, and uh, and uh, used to generate new statements. So you start with your assumptions, and then you are able to apply tautologies on your assumptions, right? So if uh, if my my assumptions are uh, say uh, Gov joins a Skype call whenever Puya is on a Skype call, uh, no, or if if Puya is on a Skype call, then Gov joins a Skype call, and then I have Puya joins a Skype call, then I can make the deduction that Gov is joining a Skype call, right? So, so this this is precisely what I mean by a proof machine or a, or an inference engine. I see, uh, so, yeah. So, and, and it turns out that all mathematical theorems are proved using this this technique. Of uh, obviously, it gets more more hairy and way more complicated. But uh, this is at the at the essence of it. This is what's going on. So, uh, Deep, do you do you do you see the same kind of? Um, does this apply to what you do or physics in general? Like, um, what, what what the problems you're trying to solve? Or do you have a different view on this, or do you agree with this view in general? Um, I I do like uh, I I do like the uh, the meta analysis that Govin has of like where our school of thought has gone from um, mathematical axioms and the art of proving it and like trying to show the world that logic is good, our best tool at least for now. Um, that being said, uh, the interesting at thing that for just now. wow <laughs> right because uh like uh in the early uh well like. 20th century, uh, we had Kurt Gerdell. Uh, he came out roughly 30 years after um, David Hilbert posted a bunch of open math problems. And one of them was, mm -hmm. uh, is every single mathematical statement provable? Um, right? So like it's kind of like what, what Govan is uh, talking about. Like if right. you have a set of axioms, uh, can you have what is called like a complete uh, set of uh, truths? So like it, it can it describe like a complete model or whatever? Um, and he... So Kurt Gode, I th I don't know if it's Godel or Gerdel, by the way, uh, but he. I didn't. Uh, I didn't even think about different versions of that pronunciation. Good point. I don't know. Do you know Govin by any chance? Yeah, I think uh, the the actual pronunciation is Gerdel, but I mean neither yeah. of us are native uh, speakers of wherever he's from. So <laughs> okay, fair it point. Really and it's technicality doesn't matter. Sorry, keep yeah, going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, fair. So. So yeah, and uh, Govind, uh, like definitely feel free to interject um, if you have a better definition. But like, I really value uh, the, his incompleteness theorems and really what the implications were because a lot of mathematicians were genuinely depressed after his quote like press conference or what at his conference at the mathematicians conference when he first uh, laid out the answers. Everybody was expecting him to. Um, say that yes, indeed, it is possible to prove every single mathematical statement. Um, and he, the fact that he said the exact opposite, literally, objectively ruined some people's careers because their entire career was tied to this mental idea and notion that they would be able to prove everything that they were set out to prove and discover about mathematics. Uh, so that, like, like that, coupled with uh, Bertrand Russell, who is also another uh, very famous logician. Um, uh, basically poked a hole in modern day logic and like set theory, and I don't think it's ever recovered. And it sort of definitely ties into like the stuff that Govin talks about in terms of like fractals and stuff. But basically, Bertrand Russell, the on the flip side, showed that uh, there's problems with the way that we define sets and set theory, and all of logic, um, or like a lot of logic, is based on set theory. Yeah. Um, uh, so. j j just to add to that, I think uh, this this is something really really interesting about how. Uh, whether you think math is invented or discovered or some some combination of the two, it's uh, uh, I, we we can largely agree that our intuition is involved, and uh, sometimes it's just it, our 
I'm not sure if it is our intuition that leads us astray or or maybe we're just not looking hard enough or at the right places. And another example of this is with uh, when when Georg Cantor discovered uh, or proved the existence of different cardinalities of infinity uh, with the, the real numbers having their own infinity and uh, like as in, uh, all real numbers of being like all the integers plus uh, rational numbers plus you know negative you know all that stuff right, irrational right. numbers too. Uh, and and integers being one two three four five six like th- that that has a that infinity of the integers is lesser than the real number infinity and a lot of mathematicians they straight up didn't buy that and, and not only did they not buy it some of them related it to God some of them thought Cantor was crazy he 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 eventually kind of went into like a a very bad depression towards the end of his career it's uh it's kind of crazy <laughs> dang didn't know that. Yeah, me neither. Uh, so, by the way, before I continue, if you feel like, obviously you're doing it, but yeah, feel free to interrupt each other, me, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, so where were we? Yeah, so okay, so how does this come to evolve to our time, uh, specifically with today's inference engines and machine learning and all that? How do we come to get here? I think uh, this started mainly, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about uh, probability and uh well, yeah, this was the, I think, uh, in the, I think, mid, uh, mid-20th mid century, there was, like, a firm mathematical community established in the uh, in the United States, the likes of which were never seen before. And uh, although the, the implicit interest for this community was, you know, for the for World War II and uh, for just, you know, complete dominance of the rest of the world, uh, there was some really, really, I mean, I don't think the, the kinds of, uh, this kind of, great minds coming together was ever seen in history at this scale and this magnitude. And uh, this led to a lot of like, uh, just, uh, you know, just exploring all these just crazy unexplored problems. And specifically that of probability, something as simple as a game of chance. Mm-hmm. But then when, when they looked deeper under the hood, um, it, it turned out to be this something a lot more interesting and a lot more you know, crazy in terms of uh, being able to model the world, and and Puya, you you you've, you've written about this. You should you should you should say a little bit about how this has impacted uh, physics. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I did a blog post a while ago. It was uh, basically uh, the the historical aspect of it. we 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 had to do a reading paper for one of our courses in quantum mechanics, and nice. in the in the his yeah. Well, I know that's up your alley deep, <laughs> so. So the historical aspect, I just published that part, not the actual mathematical stuff that we did. But um, the, we, we talked a very brief history, jumping of what the fuck happened there at that time. And and then you you asked a good question. I don't like. I don't want to paraphrase your question. What was your question when you asked of me? Like, I, so, so, so the the gist, the gist of the his, uh, problem was that w- what Govin asked after was that okay. The fact that everything was so probabilistic in in uh, in quantum t- theory wasn't sitting so well with a lot of people, and and then you asked something of along the lines of, uh, what is what's the real, uh, I mean, how much do you lose with probability with the, with introducing uncertainty into your models, right? And why were people so upset? And yeah, so. So till the date, till, until that date of discovery of the behavior of quantum being completely probabilistic at the time. So people, physics was completely deterministic, and that was what physics was priding itself on. We, we, if you, if given in, in the right initial conditions, position, velocity, etc., uh, we can predict the the outcome in the future time. So if you have, if you know where Earth is, 
you know and you know the laws that is uh, governing its motion for example and you know its initial initial velocity direction everything you can say uh, with good amount of certainty where is it going if not complete certain certainty because that depends on how exact your data is uh, like the initial conditions then you can exactly say when in the future earth would be right so but when you introduce probability then all you can do, and that's true of quantum in general, there is a probability that this happens, and that probability is this. And people didn't like it because, again, they wanted to... So, so it's actually interesting because in relativity, we have this notion that our space-time is complete. Um, it's either always complete or stops at a singularity, and that's what we say singularity, which means your theory breaks down. You can't explain what's happening inside the singularity. And the alternative to that is that you lose determinism, meaning you, your theory explains stuff, but it explains two different possible outcomes, or two or more. Like, it's not so deterministic. It's a trade-off. Yeah. So people didn't like the trade-off, so they were like, yep, the theory doesn't explain what's happening there. We don't have dual futures, uh, or dual possible futures. We just lose, we just can't explain it. So... So this was the gist of what people were not stomaching about the probability, or pr probably still still aren't. And I, I'm not sure even what I feel about it. I feel like, yeah, in a sense, you we, we, maybe we want that deterministic behavior to to be able to determine, like predict, etc. Um, not not just predict with probability, but actually say this is going to happen exactly. Um, but so th this is the historical aspect of it, anyways. And you continue what you were elaborating on. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, and and I guess to to what extent is is uh, is this probabilistic behavior not human? You know, like uh, I think in just in yeah. conventional language, we we use the word maybe or you know likely and all these these different terms. So it it seems to me that that we we fundamentally do use these <laughs> these de non-deterministic processes. Um, even in computer science, there's there's a there's a heavy emphasis on on deterministic versus non-deterministic uh, machines. And how they how they're actually they they are equivalent to each other surprisingly. Yeah, and uh, actually, I want to know what you think. So, because you're working in this field deep, what do you think of this uh, uh, undeterministic probabilistic behavior in, in quantum and in generally in, in everything we do in uh, uh, today's world? Um, I real just like you guys, I'm really conflicted as well. Um, but not that it matters, right? Because like the all that matters is however nature behaves locally to us, and we can only speculate what the true nature uh, is really like. So if everything, like for example, here's the, here's the thing. So um, uh, besides the fact that Heisenberg arguably is the real father of quantum mechanics, um, I really give a lot of credit to Max Born as well, uh, who right. showed that like class, right, like the classical dis, um, distribution that you observe, um, yeah, is the square of the probability amplitude of the wave function right, right. Um, because what that really showed and hit home is that look you can never actually know the exact deterministic path that something is going to take all you can really uh guess is the probability that it took this path or um at you know time t or whatever and uh the fact that like a lot of physicists early on when they saw that max born's rule actually applies in nature like we really can't predict uh where say um, which way uh, you'll measure the spin of an electron. Um, we like realized uh, that no theory was holding up. Uh, so what that means is that uh, some physicists on the deterministic camp 
um, they believe that they could create a theory that given the initial conditions of the electron, they would be able to predict exactly whether it's going to be up or down. And uh, it never ever actually worked out. Um, all that ever worked was really uh, Max's rule, which was predicting the probability distribution once you run the experiment enough times. So if you measure up, down, up, down, it will eventually add up to 50%. But uh, whether you can actually predict if it's going to be up or down, absolutely and truly random. And that's still true to this day. And we leverage that fact. Uh, and we, I think that it's really cool that we have a whole field centered around uh, this part about reality. And I'm still not sure if that's just our lack of ability, right? Like you can always argue mm -hmm. the hidden variable theory that Einstein like really uh, liked, right? And so, yeah, this that. Could you elaborate yeah, yeah, on sure. the, the, the hidden variable thing? Because that's something I'm not, I'm not fully aware of. Sure. Okay. So like the idea of the hidden variable is, um, so basically uh, I'll just give you guys some quick context about like Einstein and Podolsky and Rosen's uh, sort of view of the world, because there were two sort of as like, uh, yeah, it's very historic, right? Like there were two camps, uh, the EPR paradox people, like the proposers who said that there are three suppositions of reality that they like that they were taking. Um, like Einstein heavily believed in something called local realism. Uh, he believed that you can, there's no information that can travel faster than the speed of light. Um, and yeah, the third one, I think, was tied uh, to like no two things can happen uh, basically instantaneously. So um, the local hidden variable theory basically states that if like you have some sort of physical event that occurs, you can describe everything about that physical event by all the variables around it. And if you couldn't describe it perfectly, it's because you didn't have access to the hidden variables. Mm -hmm. So a real life example is if I throw a ball at the wall, um, and in theory, I should be able to predict, right, uh, exactly which direction it's going to bounce uh, and at what magnitude and all that stuff. So like, and sorry, what angle? Um, so in a hidden variable theory, if I'm wrong by say like one inch or whatever, that's, again, the reason why is because I didn't know maybe the friction. I didn't measure the exact momentum that I threw that ball at, right? So these yeah. are things that, I, and, and so Einstein was like, uh, and e the EPR guys in general very heavily believe that this is just how this works, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, like, so he then described, in a, sorry, ascribed these characteristics to quantum mechanics which is what we found out, right, like, you know, decades later that it was just wrong and not true. But he ascribed that, like, when you have uh, scenarios like the electron spin that I was telling you about, the weird thing is that if I entangle the two, right, and uh, uh, just spread them on different sides of the universe or the galaxy, the fact that they can somehow seemingly communicate together or whatever it is they're doing and collapse instantaneously he said that that is describable by a set of local hidden variables. So in this case, like um, he would argue that somehow, um, I actually think he couldn't be able to give a solid argument that makes any plausible sense. Uh, <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can elaborate on that if you want. Like there was an experiment that's really funny and really sort of blows a huge hole in local hidden variables, like empirically. Uh, yeah. Which is? Uh, it's basically, so... You can't just stop there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, dude. That's a teaser trailer and then that's it? <laughs> that, that's so funny. Well, okay, yeah, so... 
there's a recent experiment that um, occurred in, uh, I believe it was Vienna. So what they did was like they measured uh, the whether particles from different stars, photons specifically, were entangled with each other. So like from that star, right? So like right, right. are these two photons originating from this star? Yeah, entangled in some way. And uh, what they wanted to do to sort of, because when you're doing these experiments to prove, quote, that, you know, entanglement is a real phenomena, you need to be able to rule out that your algorithm wasn't seeded with the, like, you know, with some fake news. Like, you didn't rig it, uh, you didn't have some sort of deterministic thing, you know, going on, and it was going to, like, give you the same probability distribution you're expecting no matter what. Like, right. right? So, like, uh, or something. Correct, exa exactly. Or somebody launched an adversarial attack on your experiment to trick you, right? Like Just like stuff like that. These are all local hidden variables. Uh, it, because if you do observe that two things happen to be uh, entangled, um, which is essentially, like in this case, to like very simplify it, you're measuring two different spins at the same time uh, and seeing whether there's a correlation uh, in all the spins that you're measuring. Um, and if those correlations end up being uh, on average much greater like statistically than what you would expect of randomly uh, not entangled photons. So the what the experiment does is they pointed it at like different stars and uh, they use like other stars to seed whenever they would sample from that those photons. Mm -hmm. So so it's really smart, right? Because if their uh, thing is that's a like literally true randomness, right? Like that's they're not using some pseudo random algorithm to see their th yeah. sampler, right? So so because now the local hidden variable theorem would have to prove uh, that the star six hundred light years away was seeded and somebody tampered with it such that they knew that when these telescopes or or sorry these receivers. Uh, were pointed at them, and was doing an experiment. I like they tricked them on purpose. <laughs> so like, do you see how ridiculous that sounds? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so that's why I said that. Like, I said I want to be able to prove my more even more absurd scenarios where things are on the other side of the universe. Like, you can explain that with a classical example with a ball, but then that's not the quantum entanglement that we're we're really talking about here. So it's really uh, neat. We still have no answer. I'm obviously there is a good explanation probably but like uh that and that's sort of like the meat of this topic like the incompleteness thing too like i also believe in inherently though reality is fundamentally illogical and we will never have like a complete theorem of really anything ah well that's uh that's edgy <laughs> yeah i'm just being real <laughs> but uh i think this is a this is a good point to to shift uh towards like probabilistic ai techniques um yeah. and specifically i want to talk a little bit about neural networks uh, for 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 like those that aren't aware, neural networks are basically uh, these uh, these algorithms that are I want to say automata because that's a better word because they uh, they're they're automata that that are able to learn the underlying distribution of uh, of certain like uh, certain processes. Uh, say the uh, some some use cases are the the likelihood of of an image being uh, uh, a cat or not a cat or you know. Uh, of uh, or being able to capture the likely sentiment of a sentence or, or or a tweet or something like that, so it's it's really being able to capture that underlying distribution, uh, which 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 really which uh, is, is directly relevant to what Deep was talking about right now, um, and 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 more so, uh, it's 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 curating this this 
this distribution of of uh, of uncertainty that is in this in this encoded space because it, it converts uh, even even if uh, if you're using a neural network to basically learn uh, learn a body of natural language text it's 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 going to be curating a distribution which is in a in not not using words it's converting words into into vectors so it's it's going to be it's going to be looking at the space that is uh, that is in you know n dimensional it's it's uh, you know it's it's not words <laughs> so the the problem yep. The, the good thing about neural networks is they're almost always going to get you the the underlying distribution to to you know almost always going to be on the in the right direction at least. Mm-hmm. But the, the 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 real problem is uh, that you don't really know what it's what it's saying at the end of the day. You you know it's uh it's it thinks some things are important and some things are not, but you don't know what those uh, what the heck's going on under the hood. So it's a big, um, basically it's a black box and you don't know how it's coming to the conclusion. Is that precisely. what you're saying? Okay. Precisely, and um, and and this is how it, it differs from from inference engines because uh, with inference engines, again, going back to the example of uh, uh, if Puya is on a Skype call, then Gov joins a Skype call, and uh, Puya joins a right. Skype call. So you know, it, it's it's just deduction. So you, you have these uh, these two different um, these two different things. One is purely explainable, and the other is is not. Uh, but uh, I I think with inference engines, the problem is it's it's not really. Uh, it's more knowledge or natural language understanding as opposed to natural language processing. So, um, uh, yeah, so so I think, uh, I, I wonder which of these two is closer to how humans process, you know, or how human cognition works, or if it's, if it's, uh, or if it's a combination of the two. And I want to open it up to you guys. What do you guys think about this? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's actually a good question. I didn't think of it this way. To be honest with you, I mean, to me, now that I think about it a little, uh, very first instinct kind of thing, to me, it seems like we basically both do both things. Like, there are times that I'm not deducing anything, at least not consciously. But, well, that's a good question. Maybe I'm doing it unconsciously. <laughs> but at least I'm not doing it, con- I'm not trying to say, okay, Gov is on the, you know, Skype call, so, or whatever your example was backwards, I think. Puya is on the Skype call, if Gov is on the Skype call, etc. So I'm not actually doing that, but for example, I'll give you an example. We make inferences based on, so we, we see somebody, let's say, of a color, let's say a brown person. Now, immediately we have some idea of what that person might be. Or we see somebody in a hoodie and they're like, either they're like, they're, they're, there's some weird aspect to them. Hacker, maybe maybe not, maybe maybe drug dealer. You know, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean... I think there is a degree of probability in that, even if there is a, 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 a induction there somewhere that, okay, uh, I I decide that hoodies are associated with this kind of behavior or this kind of characteristic. But where does that come from is that you see a lot of hoodies, people in a hoodie having those kinds exactly. of similar characteristics. Yeah. So I do agree with you that it's, at least it makes sense to me that we do both things. Uh, in what order, how, um, I, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, Deep? So it, like, um, it really reminds me of the symbolic grounding problem. I think that's the fundamental crux of all, all of this. Uh, and, like, how we resolve it is going to make the difference between, honestly, like, sentient AI and AI that passed the Turing test, but everybody is still suspicious of his conscience. So, right, like, right. It, so uh, the reason why is because like uh, the symbolic grounding problem, like basically um, uh, I'll give you a real life or like example ish is like imagine if you're trying to train a robot 
uh, where the dog is. So you could start off by like representing it pictorially, but if you want to really uh, know that this dog under—I mean, this robot understands what a dog is—it uh, would need more information, right? So then you would say a dog is a pet of a human, and then you need to define is a a uh, pet and then is a pet and like is a you see what i mean and all these new yep. relations now and then you have to keep going and now you have to define a person and so on and so forth and the symbolic grounding problem basically states that the, uh technically there is no ground word because uh what happens that if is that if you were to keep following this um chain of references like or like tree of words uh right so you define a person then you define those words eventually you would loop back to the first words you started with and that's because there is no ground words. Everything, all of all of language is representation. Sorry, relational. And so, uh, what the open problem is is what is meaning then? What does it actually mean to understand anything? And one of the things that this currently alludes to is that you need an intermediary, something to make sense of the language and of the symbols, and then interpret that symbolic uh, meaning uh, in some internalized way that's accessible only to them like i think that's uh the resolution for now is that we're one of the people who can do it but i'm very curious as to if machines can do it as well so so here i can interject a little bit with uh with the work that we're doing at my company where awesome. we're actually yeah, uh, yeah because i mean this is this is right up this is precisely what we're doing uh absolutely because uh what we do is like at a more ground level is we take these these contracts and then we're able to infer knowledge uh in the way that that deep said uh, uh out of these things uh, out of these contracts so if you have uh, a bunch of like uh, obligations that are said about say in a, in a rental agreement right we, we all have uh, rental agreements and we know there's a bunch of legal yeah. jargon there <laughs> so uh, <laughs> essentially you want to be able to convert that legal jargon into knowledge of, of obligations uh, what do i as a renter owe the uh, landlord right and uh, what does the landlord owe me, and all these things? So the way we do this is using some techniques in uh, in semantics uh, or or linguistics, where you actually you create. A, I think the best way of looking at it is you create a narrative out of it, uh, and, and and these narratives are are more defined. You you have uh, an actor, you have uh, uh, an object. Um, uh, there there is a standardized format for this, known as uh, RDF triples, uh, which is basically subject, predicate, object. Uh, which, which you know, every single sentence is of, of the form subject, predicate, object to some extent. Um, like, uh, I am going outside, so I am the subject, the predicate is I'm going, and outside is the object, right? So it, it's some actor, some activity, and uh, some direction. Some, some, some direction which the activity is, you know, uh, uh, comported towards or so directed towards. So uh, w when you have this, 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 this framework, then you're able to... Um, you're able to, you know, get past that that problem of words because uh, there's this uh, a, a great quote or well actually a, a principle. It's more of a a, a law, but this uh, this mathematician or logician uh, from early 1900s, uh, Frege, Gottlieb Frege, uh, he says uh, it's called the context principle. It says a word taken by itself has no meaning except uh, I mean unless it's in in context. A word gets its meaning from context, and I think I think. Uh, like you know to truly capture knowledge you need to have the most accurate context and and this is this is precisely i think what the 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 job of um of natural language understanding is 
and uh, as opposed to what neural networks do, which is you know calculate likelihoods of, of in a more general objective manner, if that makes sense. No, I agree with you. I, I think um, uh, w specifically with the context problem, I think it does, and it does depend. We've we've seen that a lot uh, happening to ourselves, and obviously not to get political, but with our current political climate, you can see that things getting out of context is a common theme. And um, so, so yeah, it does matter. It does matter a lot, and I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of that outside of this topic that we're talking about. But, but, but I agree with you in this. Yeah, and uh, I, and another thing I would like to add is maybe, uh, maybe these two methods are isomorphic in, in that uh, maybe the, you can create a translation from a from a and a probabilistic way of looking at things to a knowledge way of looking at things, right? I mean, uh, to use your example with the hoodies, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've maybe I can say on on the one hand, I've seen many people on with hoodies acting sketchy, so I know that a person with a hoodie is likely to act sketchy. Right. Uh, versus, um, it, like you know, converting all those things to knowledge, like person A with a hoodie was did sketchy thing, person B with a hoodie did a sketchy thing. So, Therefore, person C with a hoodie will do a, a sketchy thing, and I mean, in in, in like logic 101, you, you you learn that this is <laughs> this is by itself. If you just do this by itself, that's kind of flawed reasoning, you know. If you uh, yeah. uh, cows have four legs, uh, a dog has four legs. Therefore, a dog is a cow, you know, things, right, things right. like that. Yeah. But but th but then when you introduce probability into it, I think it becomes a lot more a lot more sound and a lot more you know um, strong or robust as a model. But how would you? Okay, so outside of the human brain. Assuming this is how the human brain works, like combination of the two, how do we do that? And what proportion is which? And do we have, like, I'm, obviously I don't presume that you have the answers. I'm just throwing yeah. something out there. And uh, and do what would be the procedure? So do we first uh, collect some data, do the probability, and then uh, create some knowledge base and then start inducing? At, like... This is this is something that it, now I'm thinking while you guys are talking about this I'm I'm thinking about it and I'm like okay this is interesting but what is the right recipe if you will so, I, sure um I I think that it like the fundamental or like the perfect solution will not differentiate between uh, what is natural language processing or natural language understanding because like the brain for example like you could argue that uh, okay sure when it looks at an image it's like locally approximated uh, by some sort of convolutional neural network, right? Or just any sort of neural network, yep. where it's taking in each pixel, right, and mapping it, uh, and the different parts of the brain will, like, break it apart and then make sense of those d individual parts, right? Like, one part of the brain, uh, I believe it's a parietal cortex, and I think it's responsible uh, for distance. Um, uh, yeah, like, like don't Like understanding on distance, you mean? <laughs> yeah, like the the distance of an object. Oh, okay. um, yeah, and I think oh man, it's been years since I uh, learned like <laughs> studied this. So, okay. but basically, then no, we're not gonna hold you hostage. We, we, if if <laughs> if if anything, we'll correct it in the show notes. So don't worry about it. Perfect. So okay, perfect. So another part goes to the temporal cortex, uh, and the temporal cortex is like the non-spatial stuff. It's like uh, I I believe it's um, more about uh, object recognition stuff stuff like that instead so you've broken apart two different um aspects of the same image right um so in that sense initially the brain didn't like differentiate uh and it doesn't like the whole way through it's constantly mixing symbolic language and some sort of underlying 
information management system. And it's still yet to be proven to me whether it's classically doing it, whether it's quantum mechanic, quantum computingly, quote, doing it, or some other esoteric. I think that uh, it, it, we're still far away from approximating what the brain actually does um, or mm-hmm. like really getting to the truth of it. Yeah, I, I and I think the likely answer is the uh, some some somewhat more esoteric. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Just I, yeah. Recently, I think we were talking about uh, what is it, permutahedrons, right? Yeah. And then the quantum application of permutahedrons. Wait, wait. Like, okay, uh, you got you got to explain. Well, what is that thing? <laughs> this is like almost. I mean, almost completely beyond my head. <laughs> so I mean, if anything, deep is the guy for this. <laughs> okay, go for it, deep. What is permutahedron? Am I saying that right? Uh, yeah, you are. Okay, so from what I understand, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I hope um, Arjun like listens to this and like doesn't totally like roast me. But <laughs> <laughs> basically, he's leveraging like kind of like what um, Govin was talking about with Cantor's infinite hierarchies. Um, he says that instead of using the base two to the n representation of qubits, where you have uh, two to the n um, states in a maximally entangled quantum system right so like two to the end classical states mm-hmm. af- after if you were to yeah so anyways uh what he's saying is like forget all that instead encode it on um the infinite number uh series so you're representing quantum information not from zero to two to the end it's zero to an infinite um and so like he like puts each qubit on its own like infinite ball so think of an infinite countable set uh I believe it's it has to be countable in his uh, scenario. So you have a sphere, a lot like the uh, Banach or a paradox or whatever. But we can get into that later. Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, so yeah, so this the so you think of an infinite sphere, uh, infinite countable set. Um, sorry, countable set, and uh, yeah, you encode your qubit on that instead. So uh, this would work really well, like I pointed out, uh, and he agreed. Uh, on photonic computing where you can have continuous variables um but yeah so that's really the crux of yeah <laughs> permahedron computing like i, I okay. don't even try to pronounce it yeah 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 no, so so the implications yeah. of this potentially are uh, basically running quantum com- quantum i would i, I want to say simulations on 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 like an ordinary laptop you know uh and on any any device that can compute really so which is which is pretty exciting and crazy which uh I mean, I, I'm I'm not really even sure to what degree it's possible because I need to wrap my head around it. But you know, uh, it looks it looks promising, which is what which is what makes me think that you know whatever is going on in the mind is probably something as esoteric as that. Yeah, you know, I see what you mean now. I, I understand yeah, what you're that yeah. and so maybe something even more crazy. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, well, that that's true. But so that's the thing. Like, I, I don't know how this is just me, like my uh, gut talking to me right now, but. Uh, I've always had this notion that um, I don't think it's just one way. I don't think us understanding uh, the mind and the brain helps us understand how how to implement it. But also us, on the other hand, separately trying to solve that problem helps us understand our own brain and our own our own mind a bit better. Uh, I don't know how much you agree with that. Uh, obviously, you can't necessarily just uh, say it. I think to a degree it did already. But um, I think it's gonna get even more interesting. Do you have anything to say on that? Well, I mean, uh, in nature, like uh, we we have all these different analytic techniques to uh, to you know create models and stuff. Like uh, you can use the language of physics, the language of computer science, mathematics, whatnot. 
But at the end of the day, nature is just nature. <laughs> there, there's only one nature. Yeah, well, that's and true. we we we're looking at all these different lenses of it. Well, and, so, and that's also another uh, good thing to talk about. So we are okay. That's fair. Uh, so you mentioned the lenses. Okay, so we are looking at um, well, say nature with these lenses, as you mentioned. What would be the naked eye kind of thing analogy? Uh, I think uh, the philosophers really added right in this, uh, and um, I, this is a this is a technique, uh, well, a method more than technique. I would say it's a method uh, known as phenomenology, which uh, yeah, I this, want you uh, to talk about that actually. Can you elaborate? Yeah, this is this is really cool stuff because uh, well, in the I think uh, 18th century, if I'm not mistaken, there's this philosopher Immanuel Kant. Uh, he created, I mean, he didn't create. He basically. Uh, uh, developed this theory that said, uh, you know, you can't really talk about, uh, you can't be a pure empiricist because then you'd be stuck with, uh, well, this problem of is the sun going to rise tomorrow or not? If the sun doesn't rise tomorrow, then everything I've stood for is meaningless, right? And, and then on the other hand, there's the rationalist way of looking at things, which is, you know, uh, God is this uh, elaborate mathematical model that I created, <laughs> which, you know, it, it yeah. could be complete bullshit. Like, I, if, I, if I have the right axioms, I can prove anything. So what he, what he said about the real world was was precisely that uh, there's there's the noumenal world the the world in itself that we never have true access to that is the world beyond our individual experience like um, I'm looking at my computer now while I can be fully aware of my experience of the computer beyond my experience of it I have no idea what a computer is or what this computer is right so the raw reality of what is precisely yeah exactly and uh, the naked eye way of looking at it right. Right. Uh, and and I think uh, th- this is what he calls the noumenal world. And uh, conversely, the the phenomenal world is our experience of it, right? It, what 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 we do have access to. So he thinks that this is what we should be focusing on, and he, we sh- we should be using our different lenses to interpret this main what we are looking at. And 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 he he wants us to always keep in mind that these are lenses, and that the the main thing that grounds all these different lenses together is is this phenomenal or phenomenological experience. So I think I think this method is really is really interesting because this way it's not it's not about knowing these these random I don't want to say random but these um, obscure techniques of uh, mathematics and the sciences it's it's about the the truth is always accessible to to all of us in just just by ability of having experience. Right, fair point. And uh, so, how does this sit well, sit with you deep doing what you do? Um. Like, I both agree and disagree uh, about... Okay, so, first of all, I really like... What What do you call it exactly? Govin, the supernuminal? Uh, just just the numinal. Okay, numinal. Okay, yeah. Uh, okay. Okay, so, like, the idea of the numinal world is very interesting because um, when you think about, like, the implications of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, right, it's one of the things to me is that that perfectly nap, uh, maps to the phenomenological world uh that's a yeah hard word to say but yeah, it, is. <laughs> it is it's a mouthful <laughs> right uh so but basically uh the reason why that is is because the very fact that there is an information limit on what you can know or measure actually uh let's let's forget knowledge for a second but at least measure um says a lot because first of all if our measurements are different objectively than the person next to us uh, then there is technically no objective reality, right? Like that's yeah. uh, a t- yeah. So um, a, an experiment or a, a very common paradox that was proposed by Wigner 
um, was called the Wigner's friend paradox, and it sort of uh, is an empirical way of testing with entangled photons or entangled particles whether there is an objective reality, um, or at least like trying to poke holes in uh, the things that Einstein believed in. So like at least one of them has to be wrong according to his paradox if it is true. And we found out that empirically it is true now. Like uh, just a few weeks ago, um, somebody did it with, I believe, like four entangled particles uh, in one go across two different labs um, that were several kilometers apart. So that's really interesting to me because what that implies is that four different people, uh, like to the order of, I think, like a hun hundreds of thousands, like statistically, you know what I mean? Like one in hundreds of thousands of chance that this was perfectly an accident, uh, that they all had objectively different results, uh, different distributions of what they were measuring on their specific part of this, uh, what was originally just one photon or one entangled particle, one particle. So what that says to me is that like we're constantly being fooled. Like if you want to physically like realize that or realize the absurdity of that, um, imagine if I uh, like actually were you know how we're um, you can't see my face right now, right? Imagine if we shared an entangled particle between us and it was in a bell state, right? So an entangled bell state means that you can check whether um, I've like made a measurement on my uh, photon or not or my whatever entangled particle we have between us. So what this means is that uh, in your world, you can see if I've made a measurement on my particle and you can also call me and see if I've made a measurement on my particle, right? It's kind of like One will give you, sorry? Kind of like uh, public key cryptography. Yeah, I like that. Absolutely. And it's totally definitely used in like quantum key distribution, like right. bell state yeah. entanglements and stuff. So, um, so, but like the, the crazy thing here is that like, all right, so let's go through this thought experiment. That, like, suppose you've checked your part of the uh, entangled, let's say, box, right? And uh, according to my uh, instrument, when I do my like bell measurement or whatever, um, it'll say that it's still in a superposition, like your side of the box. So what that means in real life is that you haven't opened it yet. You haven't checked it whatsoever. But you know for a fact you've checked it. You you're you. You opened it. Uh, mm -hmm. But if uh, according to me, from my frame of reference, if we're like we're talking to each other, um, what I would see is a literal objective paradox in my reality. That's insane, right? Like, yeah. I would be seeing what's the equivalent of, oh, uh, like, I would be, I would have to, I would be compelled to ask, who am I talking to? Like, I'm talking to a person, Huya, who claims to have seen this, uh, but I'm clearly seeing that he hasn't, yet right. I know he has. Like, I, I'll take his, he can't not have, right? Uh, so, am I talking to you? Like, am I talking to this infinite distributed wave function of you across different multiverses like that's my current belief uh mm. yeah that's that, that's really all i have to say about that oh, not that okay you can't just stop there again <laughs> no i i see what you mean though uh that's interesting but okay so yeah this is this makes this is creepy anyways uh so we've opened that no, up uh, yeah. <laughs> no but then but then that sort of makes so I don't know, man. So that's the thing. Like, if you can't objectively look at what is happening, though, that that makes sense. What Govin is saying, 
You know, right. and uh, I'll I'll make things the problem is here. there is none unless you talk about the universal multiversal wave function, which is possible too. But oh, you're saying that there might not the be even an objective reality. That's not that's, not that we don't have access to it, but we, it's it's actually not there. Just, there's just not. <laughs> yeah, okay. exactly. That's exactly right, fair it. point. Right, well, sorry, uh, go when you were saying. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, well, two things I want to say. For, for the more relevant thing here would be, uh, I guess the, the, the Wigner interpretation. Uh, no, not, not Wigner. The, uh, which, uh, the, which is the one you were telling me the other day about the uh, su- super determinism. Um, right. So super determinism uh, was suggested by Bell. Um, oh right. Yeah. 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 And uh, c- could you say a little bit about that? So basically, um, I to be honest, I forget his first name right now. But like, uh, Bell was a, a it might have been John Bell. I don't know. So he was a famous physicist, and um, um, he suggested that if his inequalities were violated through experiments that were trying to prove whether quantum entanglement is an actual thing, uh, essentially, he said that the only logical explanation at the moment is super determinism. So these two particles are observed to be entangled and collapsed instantaneously, not because they actually did, but because it was seeded at the very beginning of all of time in reality. Yeah, but so essentially there's that. no random thing. There, there's no entanglement. Exactly. It's, it, it was right. always going to be that way. Yeah, and we're just right. observing this this micro-phenomenon. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and, and also John Bell, I think, is a Scottish, act, Scottish actor. So, <laughs> Oh, wait, no, John Stewart Bell. That's the one we want. Okay, cool. So it is John Bell. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, and and to make things a little bit more messy, there's uh, like right now we we are focusing on a, like a normal logical paradigm, but then there's um, there's the law of the excluded middle, which is which is implicit in all these logical frameworks, which basically is to say, uh, if I negate the negation of something, then I get the thing itself. So if I say uh, I am not not going to the washroom, that means I'm going to the washroom, right? But um, if if you take away that law, uh, then you end up with uh, with what's known as fuzzy logic, which is, you know, which is something more quantum in nature. Would you would you agree with that? So, okay, define funny fuzzy logic from a computer science perspective, because I know it from my own. Uh, yeah, I love. I want to hear your perspective though. Uh, from a computer science, I'm I'm not sure if there's an explicit way of looking at in, in the computer science way. It's it's. I, I think the the best you can get I want to say is qubits because you have uh, you have states of truth as opposed to you know the discrete you know zero or one the discrete binary uh, and which is you know when you get to that place uh, as a computer scientist like most of your tools are invalid <laughs> right <laughs> yeah okay um, all right sure so what, what I is fuzzy logic inherently um, deterministic though like is that the play here? Um, from what I've read about fuzzy logic, it it opens more more wormholes and rabbit holes than it doesn't, because uh, I, I, in fact, even even going back to Hilbert, Hilbert, uh, I think completely dismissed uh, logical models that that didn't use the law of the excluded middle. He said this is this is everything we work towards. This is this is everything we have. You know, if you, if you get rid of the law of excluded middle, then you kind of have nothing, and. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's kind of maybe it's a desperate argument, but I'm inclined yeah. to agree with him because, man, we really have nothing if we don't have uh, true and false as uh, as absolute states, right? Uh, right. I'm 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 completely okay Wait, with so continuum. That, so so this means that uh, if if that's true, it means that true and false are not necessarily absolute. Is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
it's uh, it's like again, you know, the 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 negation of something. Like if uh, if I say I am not not going to class, uh, it doesn't mean I'm going to class, right? Oh, I see <laughs> which, what you mean. Okay. Yeah, which that that gets really really fuzzy. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now now I'm getting it. So like, okay. Uh. Yeah. It it it. I can totally see how quantum computing. You're right. It's definitely the best way of describing fuzzy logic. Uh, like, basically, um, bi- current binary logic, like all of classical logic, uh, has a definite true or false state, right? So, like, I'm holding a coffee cup or I'm not holding it. Uh, very simple. But in the quantum world, one of the things uh, is that I can be in a superposition of holding the cup and not mm. holding the cup. And, uh, it, right? And, uh, and the... the by the way, like just to like get that out there, uh, um, hopefully this reaches a lot of people because it's a very common like misconception about or way of presenting superpositions is that people say that uh, it's both dead and alive, right? Like the cat is both dead and alive. Yeah, or yeah. In my case, I have the cup and both not. And like that's not true. Like a, what it means to be in a superposition is that in my case, um, the cup is both on my table. Uh, not uh, sorry it's not on my table it's not in my hand it's not not in my hand and it's not not in my hand and on my table so okay. it's none of it's none of the logical possibilities i just exhausted all of the objectively like four combinations you could have had right so what it is is in a superposition of on my table and in my hand and that's like uh, what that means to from a physicist's perspective i'll be honest with you is that we have no logical like rational way of describing what's going on so really because we have no clue what the what the heck it is uh we're gonna call it a superposition uh and leave it at that like we have no idea what it's doing in the background what state it's really in like fuzzy logic you could say is it uh, would it be like some would it be i guess accurate to say it's an intersection of those states or or would that itself be you know not not correct Intersection how? So, like, how would you map that to the physical world or, like, mathematically representing it? Because, yeah, you could, if in a theory, like, use that as a model. But what's happening in the... Yeah. Yeah, so, so I mean, uh, just intersection as being... Uh, I have a state where it's... Uh, uh, what are those examples you said? Like, uh, whatever you said, you know? So and, inter- I would... Yeah, you could totally say intersection if you, like... If you sort of... Because you could literally switch that with entangled, right? Like... Because the other way that that you describe, right? Is yeah. Because, okay. Yeah. In so far yeah. as you can switch it with entangled, yeah. Right. It, yeah. Exactly. Because like with the the thing about superposition and entanglement is that they really honestly go hand in hand, right? So like, uh, if I'm entangled between the up and down state, like spin up, spin down, or, um, or if I have a superposition, um, right? Like a you really have an entangled state then, <laughs> if you yeah. have a superposition of two things, like yeah. uh, so yeah. So that's an intersection of states, like yeah, I think. Uh, we've uh, covered a lot of a lot of ground. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this, this boundary condition is weird, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Can you call it a boundary condition? I guess I don't know. Whatever. You just don't know what it is. Um, yeah, we did cover a lot of grounds, and we can go forever. Um, but on that high note, we're gonna have a cliffhanger. Unless you wanna have a final comment on this, yeah, any of you? Go vent first. Uh, I was trying to think of a uh, more major cliffhanger, but yeah. 
<laughs> just to really, really spook things up. But no, I, I you know, I, I want to say I'm positive. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more optimistic. I think uh, at the very, may, maybe we won't figure out the universe, but I think uh, well, we can figure out cognition. I think uh, cognition is definitely in our grasp, and um, the fact that we have access to to a human mind, like each of us by being human, I think is is a great. Uh, you know, is a great starting point for being able to actually end up with uh, some kind of computer-like thing that ends up being able to have human-like cognition. That's a good point, and I do agree with you. I think um, if we can, well, you're right, we might not figure out the universe, or maybe we might figure it out, or whatever, but at least we can get closer one step at a time. We did already do that uh, multiple times throughout history as humanity. I mean, not just me and you and, and yeah. deep but uh but uh um, although we did a lot of hay lifting <laughs> i know right we were just doing all the work basically but you know but um so but i agree, I agree with you i mean uh i don't know what happens but i i I'm, i am interested in 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 the cognition in our in our mind and uh, I'm, I'm super excited to see what what we do in the, the very short uh future like uh years to come few years uh deep Final comments? Sure. So, um, yeah, I, I, first of all, I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, we definitely covered a lot of ground. Um, I really like the talks um, which are literally at the edge of reality and, like, human knowledge uh, because that's where you need to take things in in order to really advance uh, progress, really. Um, and, yeah, my final comment, it's a little bit tangential to what we just talked about regarding human cognition. Sure. One thing that I look forward to is that once we figure it out, like the algorithmic side of it, uh, I really look forward to a society where we're telepathically integrated with every single machine and device we have. So, like, I really want a reality where our technology is indistinguishable from nature and we can, you know, like re-engineer ourselves on the spot and live in whatever environment we want whether that's off planet or like in the sea um yeah it's gonna be really sick oh that's a good one that was that was tangential but it was a good one i, I, I liked it <laughs> thanks um, <laughs> i will definitely do these more often uh for sure and absolutely and gonna, i look forward to it yeah no i had i had a lot of fun um i hope you guys did too and with that we come to the end of the show all right guys thanks for for being here Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for